Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. Well, good morning, Calvary West, and welcome. Very happy new year to you on this first Sunday of 20. 24. Kids, if you're in kindergarten, first or second grade, and you're heading out to Kids Connect, you can go ahead back now. You see Miss Jennifer back there with the sign to welcome you. Kids Connect is a time for kindergarten, first and second graders to connect with God and each other on their level. If you're a guest with us this morning, your kids are welcome to go. They are always welcome to stay with you throughout the service as well. And if you are in elementary school and you're in the service, we've got these uh, Mark series books for you. We're back into our Mark series now. From the fall. So if you want a book, you're in third, fourth, and fifth grade, you want to take some notes this morning. My wife Meredith has some right here. Actually, my daughter Molly has them right here in the front row. Molly, we hold those up so everybody can see them. So if you need to take notes this morning, you're free to come on down and grab a notebook as well. We'd love for you to do that. So you have something you can talk with your family about later about what you're learning and what God is teaching you. While, while they get those uh, books, I, I always feel like I'm a hundred years old when I talk like this, but uh, time flies. I cannot believe that it is the year 2024 already. And some of you are like snickering. You're like, oh, you're not old yet. Don't worry. It gets worse. But um, I can't help it. It's true. I am getting older uh, Meredith and I, uh, we just, we've been married for 16 and a half years, but we just celebrated our 23rd dating anniversary on January the 3rd. I don't know if any of you celebrate your dating anniversaries or not. We celebrated it this year by forgetting it until January 4th. And then I was like, oh my gosh, it was our dating anniversary yesterday. Happy 23 years, but 23 years. And as I was reflecting on that, I was like, I am so old now that all of our students here at Calvary West, middle school, high school, college students, all of our students here at Calvary West were born after Meredith and I started dating. Okay, that's how old we are. It feels old. It's a sobering reality. And we joke about it, man. My kids give me such a hard time about getting old, like the gray in my beard. I was kneeling down on the floor the other day. Marshall was walking behind me, and he was like, Daddy, I can see the skin on the back of your head. And I was like, that's so neat. Don't ever talk to me like that again, you know? But getting old isn't all bad, right? Getting old isn't all bad. One of the potential benefits of age is that the wisdom of the years can free you from some of the concerns of youth. And you may find over time that questions that loomed largest in your mind when you were young uh, just don't seem that important anymore, right? Like, what does so-and-so think about me? And when I'm here worshiping with my church family and I have my hands up, what will people think about that? Or am I up to date on all the latest fashion trends, right? You guys that I run into in Costco and we're both shopping for jeans and hoodies, right? Like we're past that point. We don't care anymore. If you're getting your clothes at Costco, I see you there, Mac. I saw them the other day. Like we don't care, right? And if you've got like wrinkles or gray hair, the older you get, the less important that stuff seems it's not that you're magically cured from those fears and anxieties just because you get older. It's that hopefully over time you're learning to turn down the noise on those things as you turn up the noise on what's really important and significant in life. And then as you do, you just stop asking or you stop asking quite as often those questions that were really important to you, really significant and prominent when you were younger. But then again, right on the other hand, there are some questions that no matter our age, we seem to ask all throughout our lives. I'm thinking of one question in particular that, at least in my mind, is just about as universal of a question as humans ask. We start asking this question as soon as we're able to think and feel anything at all. 
And we do not stop asking this question until we're dead. It's common across generations for the young and the old alike. It's common across cultures. No matter where you're from, what your background is, no matter what family of origin you come from, right? We are all asking this question all the time. And the question is this, by what authority? By what authority is a question that all humans at all times and all places have been asking. That's how they said it in the Bible. By what authority? Today, we would say it more like this. Who's to say? Who's to say? Now, how many of you have asked that question before? All of you, right? All of us have. I've asked it thousands and thousands of times over the course of my very long 38 and a half years of life. Who's to say is a question of authority. It's a question of authority. You can hear it in the questions of the religious leaders that we're going to talk about today in Mark chapter 11, but you can hear it in our questions as well. When your kids, if you have them, are griping and complaining, or you when you were a kid, and whining about the things that you've told them to do as a parent, as their authority figure. Maybe it's a, you're a teacher, maybe you're a grandparent, right? But you've told a kid to do something. You're the authority in that moment in their lives. They're complaining, they're upset with you, they're sassing you, they're disrespectful back to you. Right? What's a kid really saying? Well, by what authority do you tell me that that's what I have to do? And whose authority in this moment wins the day? Is it your authority as mom and dad or grandma, grandpa, teacher? Or is it my authority to do what I want when I want? We ask it in other areas of life as well. When the president of Harvard University gets caught up in a plagiarism scandal, what's the question at the heart of that scandal? By what authority do you use those words in that order in your academic writing and publishing? By what authority? When we're trying to figure out whether or not a law in our country is valid or not, can be enforced or not, is right and just or not, what do we do? We ask, by what authority? Who's to say whether this law is constitutional or not? And we have checks and balances to figure that out. We ask this question all the time in a million different ways. And the heart of it is always this. Who gets to decide if something is right or wrong, if something is good or bad, if it's a yes or it's a no, if it's moral or immoral, if it's ethical or unethical. Who gets to say? And by what authority do they say it? Ultimately, we want to know, is it me? Do I get to say? Am I the final authority on this? Or is it someone else? Does someone else get to say? That's the question Adam and Eve were asking in the garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And if you're using the Bible reading plan that Pastor Stephen talked about last week, you would have just read through this or listened through this. Um, I heard we ran out of those last week. We've got more of them in the uh, next steps area, those tables in the lobby. So if you didn't get one last week, get it this week. Again, the point of this is not to like read through the whole Bible in a year. It's just to make Bible reading a normal part of your everyday life. And so you can start anytime. If you miss a day, it's not a big deal. Grab those in the lobby. We've got more for you out there. But I'm listening along with the plan in uh, the Dwell app, and I think I heard it on Thursday. It's just so obvious in the story that they want to know who gets to tell us what to do, right? Who gets to say, is it us or God? We've heard his voice say no, but we want the answer to be yes. So who gets to say? It's the same question the religious leaders are asking Jesus in Mark 11. Turn there in your Bible or get there on your phone. Mark chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 27, and we're going to hear them ask Jesus, by what authority, Jesus, are you doing the things you're doing, saying the things you're saying? 
We're going to talk about where that question comes from and then how to answer it when we ask it as well. So we're going to read this together. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. The authority of Jesus question. Verse 27, they arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, This is Jesus and his disciples. It's during uh, the week leading up to his death, so the week leading up to the Passover. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus replied. He knows they're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him with a question. And so he turns the question back to them. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Remember John's baptism of repentance, or John's ministry, sorry, of of repentance and baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves, and they said, if we say from heaven, then he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, and they feared that, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Father, as we open your word this morning, God, I pray that you would meet with us, that you would lead and guide us this morning. Father, we're asking this question, who's to say, by what authority, all the time in our lives? Would you help us answer it this morning? God, once and for all, to have a, an answer to this question settled in our hearts so that when it comes up again, God, we are ready to answer. We're ready to say, who's the final authority in our own lives? God, would you move in power, the power of your word and the power of your spirit? And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We have to recognize as we get started that that question, right, by what authority or who's to say, that's not a question that pops up out of thin air. There are uh, these types of questions that we ask, we ask when our own authority over our own lives is called into question, when something or someone calls into question our ability to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, what we're going to do or not do. It's when our own standard, our own ability to call balls and strikes has been called into question. And when we get to Mark 11, this has been happening a lot lately between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's been happening a lot. Basically, everything that Jesus does and says is confronting their authority. It's calling their authority into question, and it is, it's confirming his own authority. And so there's all these little instances all throughout Jesus' life and ministry where he's calling their authority into question, and he's highlighting and confirming his own authority, and it is really, really bothering them. You can tell that it's bothering them. They don't like this at all. And we talked back in the fall, like how this is coming up. Jesus is the king over God's kingdom, right? He's the king who draws near. He comes to us in our sinfulness. He's the king who heals us physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. He's the king who rules over the physical and the spiritual world. And he's the king who speaks. He's got a message to share about the kingdom that he is ruling over. And so all along, Jesus' life and ministry has been setting himself up as the king as the final and ultimate authority. That, by implication, means it can't be anybody else. And the religious leaders know that, and they do not like that. But, but now, right, all along that's been happening, but now something more is happening. If you look back at the beginning of Mark chapter 11, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And the way that he comes into Jerusalem 
just, it, it shocks the religious leaders and it knocks them off their pedestal. Jesus comes into Jerusalem uh, at the beginning of Mark 11 and says the triumphal entry. There are these crowds gathered. Remember the word about Jesus was spreading. He teaches in this way we've never heard before. He's healing like we've never seen before. The buzz about him is out. People are gathering now to welcome him into Jerusalem, to celebrate him being there at the Passover. Many people now are seeing him maybe as, as something special, and, and the religious leaders don't like that. They don't like the cheering crowds. They don't like people hailing Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. And it is, it is basically saying, he's the big deal, and they are not. And that's the way that he enters into Jerusalem. And they don't like that, right? Because it puts Jesus at the center of everything instead of them. It puts Jesus at the center instead of them. And they do not, or they are not used to being in that position, They're not used to that at all. They are used to being the center of everything for Israel and for the Jewish people. They're the ones people look to for answers and for guidance. How do we interpret this law or that? How do we apply it to our lives? The religious leaders are the people that everyone would have turned to in that day. But now, people are beginning to look to Jesus for that instead of to them. And that's a huge threat to them. That is a massive threat to their identity, but also to their way of life. Who's to say is starting to be answered in a new way among God's people in Israel? It's no longer just like, well, the religious leaders say. Because now Jesus has been talking, and this is what Jesus will say. He'll say, you have heard that it was said. Well, who said it? The religious leaders. You have heard that the religious leaders said, but I say to you on my own authority, I say to you something different. And that's why the religious leaders come to ask Jesus these questions. By what authority, Jesus, can you say things like that? Can you heal people like that? Can you have crowds welcoming you into Jerusalem as if you are the Messiah? By what authority, Jesus, can you come into our city and our temple and do the things that you're doing and say the things that you're saying? The authority of the religious leaders has been massively called into question. And so, of course, they're threatened by that. They're threatened by that. And so they try to turn things back on Jesus with their questions. We have to ask, so like, what exactly is being threatened for the religious leaders? Like, why is it such a big deal to them that people are looking to Jesus instead of them? What did they stand to lose is a way to ask it, if Jesus is seen as the authority and not themselves. A couple of things stand out. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had a ton of power and influence right? Hard power and soft influence in Israel. It would have been uh, everything from politics and culture to religion. They had power and influence in all of those spheres. And so if it is Jesus and not them who gets the final say in all of those matters, right? In all those matters of politics and culture and religion, if Jesus is the authority and not them, what calls not just their identity, but also their livelihoods into question. Right? What are they going to do for work if they aren't the ones who represent the people and God's answers to the people in this way? These were the elites. Right? These are the insiders. Jesus is a total outsider who is calling their authority into question. Not just their like, structural authority, but also their influence. And, and the way that they ruled over their little kingdom, the way that, that, that they had that authority and that influence, man, they were used to that. They loved that. And, you know, for you in your life, you like things probably the way they are or else you change them. Maybe you're working to change some things now at the beginning of the year that you don't like. But usually we try to get things the way that we like them and then keep them that way. Lock it in 
So it stays the way that I like it. And they had things the way that they liked them. So how do they respond to that threat, to their authority, to their way of life? Well, they respond the same way that any of us would respond if it was our power, our influence that was being called into question, our livelihood or my ability to decide for myself. They plan to eliminate the threat. And you, do, you and I, we do the same thing. When we feel threatened, we work to eliminate that threat. If there's a voice from the outside trying to tell us to do something we don't want to do, we try to shut that voice out. And we haven't probably, hopefully, literally crucified someone for standing between us and the ability to do what we want when we want. But I guarantee you that you and I have both sinned against someone when we saw that person as a threat to our authority over our own lives. Okay, I want you to think about how that might happen, right? And maybe a, a clear example that we can all relate to if you've had a job, right, and your boss comes in and tells you to do something that you don't want to do. How do you respond to that? Cheerfully working as unto the Lord? Or are you bitter? Are you resentful? Right? Do you gossip about them behind their back? Are you outright insubordinate and refuse to do what they ask you? As if you do anything other than cheerfully, yes, I'll do that. It's not immoral. It's not unethical. I'll do that as unto the Lord. Right? You're sinning against that person who's in authority over you. Right? Kids do this to parents all the time. And we talk about this. You did this to your parents when you were a kid, right? If you're not obeying the first time, right, without delay, without disgust, and without, what's the other one? Delay, disgust, discussion, without discussion, right? There's no back and forth. It's just, yes, mom, yes, dad. If as a kid, you're doing that in any other way, then you know what this is like. Your parents are saying, I'm the authority and you're not, and you don't like that. This might happen in your marriage some, right? Where your spouse asks you to do something for them that you don't want to do. And you're like, don't tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. All right, and I see a couple of little heads turning now happen in the first service too, and so I apologize, right? But we do that, right? And Meredith would be tapping on my leg if somebody else was preaching and saying that, right? Because I'm like, you don't know me, right? You're not in charge of me. We don't like being told or even asked to do things that we don't already want to do because we see ourselves as the authority. I, remember if you, I wonder if you can remember the last time that that happened to you, right? That someone from the outside stepped in with some kind of claim to authority that threatened your own, threatened what you wanted, what you thought was right, what you thought you should be able to do, and so you lashed out at them sinfully. There's just lots of things that run through my mind, but let's not stop there with just horizontal relationships. Think about your relationship with God now. When was the last time Jesus called your authority into question? Right, when was the last time that you wanted to say for yourself, who's to say? Me. I'm to say, it's my life, I'll decide. But it turns out Jesus had already said something about that. Doesn't that just drive you nuts sometimes? You're like, I would love to go and do this. I would love to say that thing right now. I would love to experience this thing, but Jesus has already said. Like, who's to say, right, I can't yell at my kids when I'm angry so that they know I'm angry. How else will they know if I don't let them know? That's sometimes how we think as parents, right? Like, they're out of control, I've got to come over the top. I've got to put an end to this. So, man, you're going to know by the tone of my voice and how loud it is that you've messed up, that I'm angry now and you need to change. Who's to say that I shouldn't do that? Well, it turns out Jesus is to say, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Beginning of the year, you're going to start getting tax forms in now. 
right? And, and giving statements and statements from your bank and from your investments. And you got to collect all those and take them to your tax person. Who's to say that I shouldn't be able to cut a few corners and keep more of my hard-earned money rather than sending it off to be wasted by someone else, right? Who's to say? Well, it turns out Jesus is to say. When the religious leaders asked about paying taxes, Jesus said, give to Caesar, to the government, what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. That's just two direct quotes from Jesus, but we know that the whole of the Bible is inspired and authoritative. And so you could take anything that, that the scripture teaches and lay that down over our lives, and we could do this exact same thing. Who's to say that I can't be intimate with whoever I want whenever I want? Well, God's to say, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There's a spiritual reality being represented there, but that spiritual reality is demonstrated in the physical act of sex, and that's why sex is designed exclusively for marriage and not for other relationships. God's to say, who's to say I can't get drunk or get high or do whatever I want with my body, whenever I want, with whomever I want? And again, God says, do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And we could do this all day from the Scripture, where we would love to say, we would love to be the final word, but God has already spoken. And we want that authority that he has. We want to be the ones deciding. We want to be the arbiters of truth, of right and wrong. As humans, we've wanted that ever since Adam and Eve wanted it and took it for themselves in the garden. God, we hear what you're saying about that fruit on that tree, but we say something else. And it's our word, God, that's going to stand and not yours. And just like the religious leaders, right? When someone threatens that authority that we crave, we find ways to eliminate that threat. We can't kill Jesus like they did, but we can reject him. We can reject his authority and shut out his voice in our lives. I think there's three ways probably that we uh, tend to either personally or as a culture reject the authority of Jesus. Answer the question, who's to say with me instead of God? The first is this. We reject Jesus with hostility. We reject Jesus with hostility. Two main ways that we might see that in our culture. One is through competing claims and the other is through uh, the claim that there is no authority. So competing claims, you think about mutually exclusive claims, the way that a Muslim would talk about their faith and a Christian would talk about their faith. If either one of us is right, we can't both be right. So that's the idea of a mutually exclusive claim. If either one of us is right, we can't both be right. The Muslims would say, we have the final authority, that our book, our God, and we would say, no, that's wrong. So we're having competing claims. And that can really heighten tensions between people, between groups and ethnic groups and cultures. And all throughout the world, we see this playing out. You see it in Nigeria right now, right, where Muslims are massacring Christians because of their faith to stop the spread of the gospel because they have a competing claim that they believe is the right and authoritative claim to authority. It's not just Christians and Muslims. It's, it happens between Muslims and Hindus. It happens all over the world. But when it comes to Christians, they say, we want to stop the spread of the gospel because we disagree with that claim that you're making. Ours is right and said, we have the ultimate authority with us. It's not just religious competing claims. So there's also the way that secular claims from the state can compete with religious claims, specifically with the claims of Jesus to be the final authority. The state steps in and says, no, we have final authority. And not just your religion, but all religions are excluded. Right? That's just as hostile to the claims 
of Jesus. Then you've got the, the claim that there is no final authority in that way. Claims from people like Dawkins and Hitchens, the new atheists, who would say, man, religion as a whole is a poison and all of it should be excluded. We are humans and we decide we are the authority, not any one particular religious claims. Both of those positions represent a hostility towards Jesus and his authority in the world. The second way we tend to reject Jesus and his authority is this, with indifference. We reject Jesus with indifference. Two major streams of this, again, pluralism and postmodernism. Pluralism, the idea that there can be more than one source of authority. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can all exist. They can all make claims that are competing, and it's not that big of a deal, right? You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe, and we just agree to disagree. If you've ever seen a coexist bumper sticker, you know what I'm talking about. That is pluralism in a nutshell. You follow your way. I'll follow mine. We can both be right in our own ways. But the second half of that postmodernism is a little more insidious. I love how Keller describes the influence of postmodern thinking. This was an article that he wrote and how it influences our concept of authority. He said the root idea is overturning all authority outside of the self. That's the root idea of postmodern thinking. In the 18th century, uh, Enlightenment thinkers insisted that the modern person must question all tradition, all revelation, and all external authority by subjecting them to the supreme court of his or her own reason and intuition. We are our own moral authority. That's what postmodernism says. And you might notice, like, postmodernism tells you exactly what you already wanted to hear, exactly what you already believed about yourself, that I am the right center of my own moral universe, that it is right for me to go on my feelings, my intuitions, my desires, and my beliefs alone. No one else can decide for me. Whether it's the, a religion or the state or some thinker or whatever, your opinion, it does not matter. And so I can just shrug my shoulders. And I can be completely indifferent to anything that you have to say because inside I'm feeling, I'm believing something different. Postmodernism puts us at the center and so everything external can be safely ignored. So we've got hostility, we've got indifference. Well, listen, I suspect that if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been coming to church for a while, you probably don't identify strongly with either one of those. Or you're probably not hostile to the claims of Christ, rejecting them outright. You're probably not indifferent to the claims of Christ if you're here. But I think there's a third, a third form of rejection that probably all of us do identify with, can identify with, but would never want to, uh, like, out loud admit to. And it says, we reject Jesus with selective obedience. We reject Jesus with selective obedience. And here's what I mean. We may agree with Jesus and his claims to be the ultimate authority. We might say Jesus is Lord. We might follow him in baptism. We might gather and sing songs, right? I lay my life down. I surrender to you. But when push comes to shove, in real life, we retain the right to say no to the application of that authority. We retain the right to say no to specific applications of Jesus' authority that we don't like or that we disagree with or that go against what we would say for ourselves. Probably the easiest example of this is one that I mentioned earlier around sexual ethics. Christian Smith is a sociologist. He studied like belief among adults and young adults. He wrote a book called Souls in Transition. And one of the things that he talks about in the book that Keller picks up on as well is, is this. He talks about how even young adults 
who go to conservative Christian churches just like this one end up believing things that are completely contrary to what the church and Scripture teach, right? Especially prohibitions against premarital sex and other biblical norms that conflict with their feelings and their intuitions. And what's interesting is that it's not just young Christians, young adult Christians, teenagers who do this. It's not, this is not a Gen Z problem or anything like that. And it's not just around sexual ethics. We all do this all the time with things that are important to us, things that we hold dear to us, things that we would rather be some other way than the way that God has already said. Who gets to say if I should divorce my spouse? And what counts as an appropriate reason to do that? Who gets to say? By what authority do they say it? Who gets to say how I should spend my time, the 24 hours every day that I get, who gets to say how I should allocate that time? Who gets to say how I should spend my money that I worked for? Who gets to say? Who gets to say what priorities I set for my kids as their mom or dad or what principles I use when I'm raising them? Who's to say? Bottom line when it comes to selective obedience is this. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Right? Partial obedience is still disobedience. And so when you and I say Jesus is Lord but we refuse to let him have the last word on our lives, the day-to-day, the actual living it out. When we refuse to let him have the authoritative word on our lives, we are rejecting him just as much as those who have a different faith, and we are rejecting him just as much as those who would say they have no faith in that moment. Selective obedience is a form of rejecting Jesus' authority in our lives. Whether it's you know, hostility, indifference, or selective obedience. Right, why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we reject Jesus' authority in our lives in any one of those ways? I think it comes down to this. At the end of the day, it comes down to trust. It comes down to trust. Right? If we believe that we could do better for ourselves, then God will do for us. If we believe that we know better than God knows for us, if we believe that we want better things for ourselves than God wants for us, And if we believe that we can get those things more effectively, then God can get them for us. If we believe that we can do better for ourselves than God will do for us, then we will always be rejecting his authority in our lives. We will always tune out his voice and let our own voice speak the loudest because we're already saying what we want to hear. And so we will always do that. But let me ask, I just wonder if that seems to be working for us. Right? I wonder if at the end of the day, if any of us would say, man, the times that I have gone against what God said was right and good and best and done what I wanted instead. Think beyond just the moment of gratification, maybe when that happened. Did that turn out well for you in the end? Does it seem to be working for you? Does it work for your family? Right? When you as maybe husband and wife are battling it out, who gets the authority rather than working together? Does that strengthen your marriage? Or does that harm your marriage? When you and your kids are in this struggle, who gets to say, right? And they're disobedient and you're angry and you're going back and forth. Does that strengthen your family? Does that make your home a better, more enjoyable place to be? Or does that bring weakness into your family and fracture and dysfunction into your family? When you're at work and your boss says, do this and you don't want to do it and so you don't. 
Does that make you a better employee? Does that make your workplace a better place to be? Does that help your company or hurt your company in the end? Is this working for us? Rejecting Jesus and his authority in favor of us and our own authority, right? What is that getting us in the end? I think you can read the news as well as I can, right? And who's to say does not seem to be working well? Giving ourselves authority over right and wrong, good and bad, yes and no, ethical or not, moral or not, it doesn't seem to be working in our marriages, it doesn't seem to be working in our families, it certainly doesn't seem to be working in the wider culture, but I think there's a better way. Right? What if instead of rejecting Jesus to protect ourselves, what if instead of rejecting his claim to authority in our lives in favor of our own claim to authority in our lives, what if instead of protecting my little kingdom where I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, what if instead of that, I laid all of that down? I laid all of that down. Every claim to be the final word, every claim to say yes to me and no to God, Every claim that I'm right and everybody else is wrong and God is wrong too, what if I could lay all of that down and still have confidence that I would be taken care of in the end and still have confidence that things would work out well for me in the end and still have confidence right, that God was going to do right by me in the end. I want you to look at Mark chapter 12 with me. Because Jesus is about to tell a story. He's had this conflict with the religious leaders They're calling his authority into question because everything he does calls theirs into question. And they end, right, where that exchange ends. He's saying, like, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. If you don't have the courage to answer, right, I'm not going to say it. I've been saying it my whole life is the implication. You know that I've come from God. Everyone knows at this point that he's coming from God. And that's why they're so upset with him in the first place. And then he begins to tell a parable that's going to do two things. It's going to say something to them. And it's going to say something to us. Okay, so he tells this parable. A man planted a vineyard. That's God the Father. Okay, so God the Father, he planted a vineyard. This man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. The vineyard, by the way, is his people. So God establishes his people. He puts a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. He rented the vineyard to some farmers. He went away for a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of that vineyard. God's people are meant to bear fruit is the point of this part of of the parable. And Jesus is calling back now to Isaiah chapter 5 where God's people are pictured as a vineyard in a story very much like this one. They do not produce the fruit of obedience, the fruit of love, right? And so God judges them and they're sent into exile. So everything Jesus is saying, what he's trying to say to the religious leaders is remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5 about God and his people, how they're a vineyard. He established it, and he expects them to produce good fruit, the fruit of obedience. Okay, so, uh, but they weren't. So at harvest time, he sends the servant. They seize him, verse 3. They beat him, and they send him away empty-handed. These servants that God is sending are the prophets to his people, and his people are rejecting them. They seized him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant, another prophet to them. They struck this man on the head. They treated him shamefully. He sent still another. And that when they killed, he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. God is saying, I've been sending prophets to you for a long, long time, and you have not been listening. Right? I'm trying to call you back to myself. I'm trying to call you back to obedience. I'm trying to help you produce the good fruit of obedience, love for God, love for others, and you will not listen. Look at verse 6. He had one left to send, 
a son whom he loved. Who does that sound like from the beginning of Mark's gospel? This is my son with whom I am well pleased, who I love. Right? Jesus is identifying himself in the story. God the Father had one son left to send, or one son to send, one servant left. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. Jesus now is talking to the religious leaders about right now. He's saying, God has sent me to you, this one last prophet, his own son, to draw you back. They will respect my son. But the tenants, the religious leaders, said to one another, the people, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. The kingdom will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus is saying, you're doing the same thing to me that you've done to the prophets all along. You're rejecting me. I was sent by God. I was sent from God. It is his authority that I'm teaching and calling you back to him. And you're rejecting me like you always do. That's what he's saying to them. What he's saying to us is this. I know that I came here to die. I know that I came here to die. He's predicting his own death in this parable. Right? And it's, this is the week leading up to it. I know that I came here to die. I know that I came here to lay down my life so that you could be reconciled to God. That's what I do with my authority. Think about what we do with our authority when we have it. If you have the authority, if you have the influence, if you have the means, the money, what do we do? We bend things towards us so that they are best for us. Right? We arrange things in our lives so that they're most pleasant, most pleasurable for us. And I think about how different that is from what Jesus is doing with his authority. He says in John's gospel, right, I have the authority to lay down my life and to pick it up. No one can take it from me. These guys couldn't have killed Jesus no matter how bad they wanted to if he hadn't let them. And he lets them. He has all authority. And instead of orchestrating things so that they go well for him, what does he do? He turns it all over so that they will go well with us. Jesus has all authority, right? He's the divine son, the eternal king. No one can take his life away. He's going to lose it anyways because he lays it down. So what we see here, what Jesus wants us to hear, he's confronting them, but what he wants us to hear in this is, hey, I have not come to do what's best for me at the expense of others. Right, I've come with my authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says in Matthew. I've got it all. And what do I do with it? I lay it all down to do not what's best for me, but what is best for you. That's what makes Jesus so very different from any other authority we've ever experienced, including our own. That's also what makes Jesus an authority that we can actually trust. Because here's the thing. We can trust Jesus with everything because he held back nothing to do what's best for us. We can trust Jesus with everything, with our whole lives, because he held back nothing good from us in his exercise of authority. He knew. He knew he was going to be rejected. He knew he was going to be killed, and he came anyways. He came into the world. He rode into Jerusalem. He confronted the religious leaders. He calls people back to himself and to his kingdom. He knew where this would end. That full quote from John, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received 
from my Father. Who's to say? Who's to say, Calvary West? Is it us or is it him? It's not us. I don't have ultimate authority over my own life. You do not have ultimate authority over your own life. Jesus is to say. And he sang it by the authority of his Father in heaven who sent him here in the first place. It's interesting. One day when we stand before God face to face, God is in essence going to say to us, by what authority do you come to me? By what authority do you think you can live in my kingdom forever? And if we've been answering our whole lives right here in the here and now, I'm doing this by my authority. I'm saying this by my authority. Right? I do what I want when I want because I think it's right and best for me. If that's how we're used to living our lives, how weird will it be when we stand before God one day and he says, by whose authority do you stand here? If we say us in any way, we're gone forever. We're gone forever. God, it's by my own moral goodness that I stand before you today. God, it's by my own obedience that I stand here before you today. God, it is because I have, I have done so much on your behalf. It's because I was so effective in sharing the gospel. It's because I went to so many Bible studies. It's because I never missed a Sunday. It's because I gave so much of what you gave me away. That's why I stand before you today, God, because I know you'll want me here. And we're gone forever. The only answer in that day I stand here on the authority of Jesus who gave up his life, who laid it down so that I might have life in the world to come. We can begin answering the question now. Right, and we should. We don't have to wait until we see God face to face. In fact, if we wait and we think I'll answer it differently then, the answer is already locked in at that point. But we can answer now. Right, by whose authority? Jesus, I am trusting in you and in you alone. I'm listening to your voice. I'm laying down the right to decide for myself. It feels so normal. It feels so natural. It feels like it's mine to decide. God, I am laying that down. And your voice will have the final say. I want us to meditate on two questions as we close. The first is this, like, just how am I responding to Jesus' authority? Maybe you are hostile. Maybe it's the beginning of the year and you're here at church for the first time or the first time in a long time because things are not right and you're not sure how to make them better. And you know, man, I've been hostile to the claims of Christ. That's where I was as a teenager. Maybe it's where you are now. And you just need to see Jesus as one who, he's not going to beat you into submission. He's not going to manipulate you into submission. He is going to lay down his life on your behalf. And you just need to be shocked by the beauty of that, by the grace of that, by the mercy of that. Maybe you're indifferent. Who's to say, man, I believe this, they believe that. How can we know who's right, who's wrong? And you need to hear Jesus saying this morning, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you need to learn to trust that in a way you never have before. Maybe it's selective obedience for you. God, here's the things I'm willing to do. Functionally speaking, here's the things I'm not really willing to do. Here's the parts of my life you can have, God. Here's the parts you really can't have that I'm holding on to because I don't trust you yet with that part of my life. 
And man, you just need to hold your hands open. God, this life is yours. It's yours to rule. It's yours to lead. It's yours to guide. It's yours to say. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one wants alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.